This is Glenn. I'm here with Daniel. Hello. And tonight we're going to be reviewing a film from 2013 called Short Term 12 from director Destin Daniel Cretton, which uh, is a film that we were compelled to revisit because it's been mentioned in a complimentary fashion many times over the years on film Twitter and because many of its actors have gone on to win major awards and star in major franchises. So uh, that is a film that we uh, that we will be checking out later. We picked that one as a counterpoint to our feature for this week, which is out in theaters uh, as of last weekend and is hitting uh, premium video on demand, and that is the new Neil Berger film, Voyagers. This is our best chance to find a habitable planet. We breed and raise our own crew. Train them in isolation to prepare them for life in space. The voyage will take 86 years. I'm scared. Of what? The normal kids. Sensitive and smart. I need to protect them. There's a toxin in the water. It's coming from us. We're eating something toxic. It's the blue. It's medication. Blue. To decrease pleasure. Blue. I'm not drinking it. What does it feel like to feel something? You're not feeling what I'm feeling. What's going on? They're drugging us. To prevent exactly this kind of thing from happening. Restarting. That was from the trailer of Voyagers, the new film from Reddit director Neil Berger, starring Ty Sheridan, Lily Rose Depp, Vian Whitehead, and Colin Farrell. This film is about a generation ship that is leaving a future Earth uh, in search of another planet to uh, resettle humanity on because the Earth is getting hotter and less habitable. And they are on their way to a planet that is going to take them 86 years to arrive, which is what makes this a generation ship. They are going to need a crew that is able to breed and have babies. Those babies will then grow up, live their entire lives, operate the ship, and die on board, but not before reproducing themselves. And maybe the grandkids of the first generation will get to see the new planet. So we have a situation here where... We basically have to send a group of children into space knowing that they're going on a mission to a planet that they will never see. And they are to inflict that upon the next generation and the next generation after that. And the person whose brainchild this is, uh, is a man named Richard Alling, played by Colin Farrell. And when we begin the film, he is looking after these children uh, being raised in what is essentially a giant airplane hangar. They are completely cut off from the outside world. They only have the information that that this program gives them access to. And the closest thing we get to a rationale for that over the, uh, uh, over the first act of this film is that they don't want them to miss Earth so much. They want them to be okay with living on a spaceship. And if they've been growing up in confined and cramped quarters, maybe they won't miss the wide open spaces quite so much. 
So that's already kind of a dubious premise to begin with, but it, when I say a dubious premise, I mean dubious for its effectiveness. It's obviously uh, an interesting narrative premise to begin with. And uh, so we have this group of, you know, we quick, we're quickly aboard the spaceship and uh, and Richard Alling goes with them because uh, he's the one person who has been with them their entire lives and, and has a chance to, to raise them. They're about to... They're about to launch. They get to launch a little bit, a little bit earlier, four years earlier, and off they go uh, into space. And this guy uh, ra- uh, proceeds to raise them for ten years, uh, just alone with them aboard this spaceship. So when we reconvene, it's uh, it's with the uh, this slate of Gen Z actors uh, who are uh, who are all playing them as as sort of early twenty somethings, but they are essentially in a state of arrested development. They don't really know how to be fully functioning adults. They're they're basically uh, they're basically grown up children. So. I was pretty much on board with this premise at the beginning. I was pretty intrigued to see where it was going to go, because if you have some committed actors who are willing to really play to the reality of that premise, you could end up with something very interesting. So, Daniel, did we end up with something very interesting? No. You remember that book in high school, War of the Flies? Oh, how can I forget? It's as if someone read that book and said, but what if in space? And that and that's what we get here. And boy, oh boy, is this movie a mess on so many levels. Explain to me, Glenn. You're 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 a science guy. You you love space. Why wouldn't they just cryo freeze these kids? <laughs> what if you already have all this like tech? How do you not have that? Well, you're you're asking why they don't cryo freeze the kids. Well, you're describing technology that does not exist currently, and another technology that does not exist currently is faster than light travel. So, uh, and another technology that doesn't exist currently is uh, is artificial gravity. So, this film definitely hand waves away the difficulties of setting up spin gravity. They're not they're on a ship that is sort of slowly rotating, but it's not entirely clear how they have gravity on board. But that was sort of the one thing that they were willing to hand wave away. Uh, if you have cryo-freezing on board, you effectively don't have the entire premise of this film. You instead have a film like Passengers, where the uh, the, cr- the passengers and crew are meant to be frozen the entire way there, and they do get to see the other, uh, the planet once they arrive. Or, or the alien uh, franchise, because they can exactly, cryo-freeze exactly. people. Yeah. Um, that's not technology we've cracked in the present day. It's obviously something that they could have put into this movie if they wanted to, but you really wouldn't have the opportunity to tell this story if that was where they were. Well, sure, sure. So, I mean, the answer is because it it, it would prevent the narrative. I get that. But, like, I'm just thinking they have this advanced technology, and instead of applying it to fight climate change, they're just going to roll the dice and just colonize a planet that's 86 years away. Again, uh, maybe not the best idea on humanity's part, but it's definitely rich narrative territory. So, like, was Mars not an option? Has Elon Musk failed us? I mean, Mars is only an option insofar as you know, in a given a couple hundred million years and unlimited resources, we could maybe terraform it. This this movie has uh, some actors that really throw themselves into the role, but what they're given is really just not good writing. Uh, there, there's. Uh, there's an aspect to this called the blue, which, narratively speaking, I get what they're trying to do, but it just comes across as really, really basic and silly uh, as a form of control. Yeah, I mean, we can talk about the blue because it's very early in the film that they identify this. So uh, the kids quickly figure out that they're being drugged. Uh, there is a substance in their food uh, that uh, it's, it's just let, identified by a letter and number combination. Uh, they find it. They determine that it's toxic in some way. 
And uh, Richard clearly knows what this substance is, but he doesn't tell them. But he also tells them, hey, there are things that we're not allowed to know about the mission. These were decided by Mission Control back home. So he, he's trying to sort of give them the idea that, hey, you can trust me, but you also have to, ex- you also have to understand there are things I'm not allowed to tell you. Um, and that, that can hold for a while, especially when you're controlling their behavior with drugs, which is, in fact, what the purpose of the blue is. Um, but once they decide they're going to stop taking it, kind of all bets are off. So it gets into a very interesting place here because this was meant to suppress impulsive behavior and and specifically sexual behavior. Dampen it, yes. And I'm going to go ahead and toss out a content warning here. When we discuss Short Term 12, we're going to be discussing some fairly harrowing subject matter, and I will, I will give a more specific content warning then, but uh, this film does, uh, does depict a sexual assault, and, um, and we will be discussing the details of that in spoilers. Unfortunately, that's unavoidable when, when discussing this film. But what we get is uh, the, we, we have these 20-something grown-up actors who presumably know what sex is in real life, who are playing these people who should not have any idea what sexuality is, and they're exploring it for the first time. They've maybe not been educated in this area at all, because that is a very important detail of this mission. They were not intended to reproduce sexually. They were intended to uh, reproduce through in vitro, basically. They were going to use artificial wombs. They were going to extract their sperm and eggs and uh, combine them and implant them into an artificial womb. So they were never meant to have sex. They were meant to just be this this of asexual Vulcans uh, flying their way through space, which I don't know is maybe the only way that you could get humans to agree to this mission. It's an interesting idea. Um, it's probably one of the movie's only interesting ideas, but it doesn't work out. Well, too it well. doesn't help that they have one adult on board. Like, if you want to like keep control yeah. of things, won't there be I don't know more than one adult? And their original plan was to send them up with no adults whatsoever. And in a way, Richard kind of unavoidably ends up passing along information about his life back on Earth because he is a human who has grown up on Earth. He has grown up with the full suite of human emotions. And he ends up developing a bond with the character of Sela. And it's it's a bond that is akin to a father-daughter bond. Of course, he's raised her along with the rest of them. And uh, they talk about his life back on Earth. And he shows her uh, he shows her you know, personal photos and video um, of his life back on Earth. He's brought along some uh, some sense memory stuff. He's brought along like some herbs and some uh, some pine needles and things like that. Which seems like a breach. Well, it's the sort of thing where when they agreed to allow Richard to go along, they allowed him to include these personal items because they thought he would go insane without them. But he was never meant to share any of that with the crew. And the minute he started doing that... That was that was kind of the beginning of trouble because he was giving them a hint of a life that is bigger than the experience. That right, that's what I mean. Like a breach of protocol is that he was sharing with Sela, like this is what this smells like, and this is what an open field looks like, and you're never gonna see yeah. any of those things. Lols. Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, this movie, and again, like a, a the unapologetic uh, Lord of the Flies adaptation that it is, is trying to fundamentally assert that human nature is conflict between savagery and civilization. The allegory in uh, in Golding's book barely held together when it was just school kids, because you ha- you can accept on a visceral level that school kids do not have fully formed identities and, and haven't really decided what they're going to be yet. So when you put them in a situation where the circumstances force them to be whatever they're going to be immediately, some of them are going to turn out good and some of them are going to turn out bad. And to the extent that that book works at all as anything but a lesson on, on symbolism that you can fill in a fucking spreadsheet with, um, it does work on that level. This film... I think making them ad- adults kind of makes the entire story. Well, that's why the, the blue is, is important, because it effectively just renders them as children the whole time, right? The second they get off that stuff, they don't go through any sort of withdrawals. They just go crazy. 
Yeah, I mean, it's magical drugs. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, like, I, I think if they add a withdrawal mechanism to it, like, they need the blue. Like, some of them struggle with going without it more, you know, worse than others. I think that would have been a little bit more realistic or at least interesting. All of a sudden, it's a spring break on the ship. I think the other thing the movie really had trouble with was it did not establish a clean baseline or clean or a consistent baseline of what level of knowledge these kids have. Because, effectively... That is com- that is the one thing that's been completely controlled. No information that that the humans who designed this program back on Earth don't uh, want to avoid giving to the to these kids as they're raising them. Any information they give them is entirely voluntary. They could never teach them about war. They could never teach them about violence. They could never teach them about anything that they don't want them to exhibit. Anything that is not mission critical. Which is why it makes a certain amount of sense that they know things like how to operate every part of the ship, how to repair the ship. That's stuff that they need to know. But there are also things that they seem to know that they kind of just figured out on their own, sort of soft social skills. And it's unclear where they got those from. And it's also completely inconsistent from one moment to another which of those they actually possess. There are times where they feel like they know how to relate to each other like ordinary people who've had an ordinary childhood. And there are times where they really don't feel that way at all. And they, they, they... are kind of interacting with their with their burgeoning sexuality in a very clumsy way, in a way that doesn't really understand consent, in a way that doesn't really understand boundaries. And again, that all could have been pretty interesting as a as a topic of exploration here, uh, but it really wasn't because it wasn't consistent. I, there's there's one scene in particular that I want to talk about, but I think we can save we can save that. For just sure. a bundle of hormones. Even though it's literally on, it's literally on the fucking posters. Yeah, and. I don't know. Like, I, I, I didn't care about them going to the planet. Like, because none of those characters are going to make it. So what, whether or not the mission is successful doesn't matter to me as the viewer. Yeah, I, I mean, I expected to see some sort of ending to that to that aspect of it. Like, was it all for anything or not? And, you know, to some extent, we do get an answer to that question. But, um, yeah, I, I'm kind of with you here. I think that because, uh, because I never really bought into what these characters were going through and why they were acting the way they were. It really just felt like, as I put it on Twitter on the night, it feels like somebody who read Lord of the Flies 30 years ago saw the trailer for Claire Denis' film High Life and thought, I can do better than both of those. (laughs) Daniel, did you ever see High Life? No, I I have not. High Life is... Just picture this movie on fucking meth and you've got High Life. It is a group of prisoners... Uh, you know, adult prisoners who are sent on a mission to harvest energy from from uh, a black hole, uh, or basically the zone around a black hole for humanity's energy needs. And basically, the inmates are running the asylum. Like the people who are in charge are just the most violent and psychopathic prisoners. Uh, there's this doctor uh, character on board who's conducting all these fucked up experiments on the on the crew. There's all this twisted shit involving sexuality, like. That movie fully embraces like these are these are people who have completely abandoned any sense of humanity because there's no way like the ship is threatening to airlock them all if they don't continue the mission. But like the ship's breaking down and the computers falling apart and like we don't even know if anybody left on is even left on Earth. They're not in communication with mission control anymore. That felt like what this movie wanted to be, but wasn't willing to wasn't really willing to go there. Well, I don't know if the actors that they they cast would, would have been able to pull that off. Yeah, I don't know either. I mean, they were playing it with a kind of innocence that I think uh, uh, several of them really pulled off well, uh, but I, I don't know that there was much else to it. 
you know, even Zach, our resident QAnon conspiracist, you know, conspiracy theorist, he felt like he was acting, right? I didn't really believe that character. Fionn Whitehead, we've seen him before. He was in Black Mirror Bandersnatch, in fact. He played the main character in that. He was jumping around through your chosen endings. But uh, again, that was another movie where the character's actions were kind of secondary to the framing device. And he seems to have fallen into a similar trap here. Uh, Lily Rose Depp, I actually really enjoyed here. I think she did. A, uh, I, th- I think that she's certainly got the most depth of any of the characters in the film. Um, she certainly has the most complex in her life. Again, for somebody who's un- in a drug-induced haze for most of the film, uh, I, I've still I, I've still found myself latching onto her character the most in terms of uh, of interest. Um, Ty Sheridan, who we also know from the movie Mud back in the day, I don't think I have much to say about him except that he was a pretty bad leader. Not a great captain, no. Uh, I have to say, like, I was rooting for Phoebe. Like, I, I the whole time, like, Phoebe was one of my people in, in the sense, like... Phoebe is played by the actress Shantae Adams, and yeah, she was very good as well. There's rules. We're all gonna die if we don't follow the rules. Let's just do our jobs. Well, also, in a given moment, she was most likely to be doing something useful to their survival. Right. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. She's they like, there's no alien... There's no conspiracy. You're all just crazy. And I'm like, yes, I agree with you, Phoebe. I mean, the other characters were pretty minor. There wasn't a lot going on. Isaac Hempstead, right, who played Bran on on Game of Thrones, uh, was in this. Wasn't really doing much. He was kind of just a secondary character to bounce ideas off of. He was he was an engineer, basically, of some sort. Um, there was uh, there was the actor Vivek Kalra as Peter. There was uh, Archie uh, Mariquez as Kai. Uh, a few of the characters kind of just exist to get into fights with each other. Like there's there's just not a lot going on there. So, yeah, shall we go ahead and get into spoilers and uh, and uh, venture further into the heart of darkness? Let's uh, grab that conch shell and uh, get to work. All right, from here on out, spoilers for Space Fuckers. No, sorry, that was the uh, that was the title that I gave you when I saw the poster for this film. And I must say, that poster gave a very false impression of what this movie was I was be. expecting something very different. Now, from here on out, spoilers for Voyagers. So, on the subject of space fuckers, let's talk about that scene between Christopher and Salo. Hoggest scene you've seen since Twilight, right? Oh boy, Daniel, I I was really disappointed by this scene because even as the scene was starting, I, I was like, oh, we're going here. We're about to see these two try to have sex for the first time and and try to interact with their own sexuality for the first time. And I, and I will grant we saw this through a through a press screener. I didn't actually know what the rating for this movie was. Uh, I could see that they were not showing anything explicit or swearing all that much. So I figured it was probably PG-13. Um, and I looked it up subsequently and it is, in fact, PG-13. But nonetheless, you could have shown a, an awkward moment of sexuality between these two without showing any anything explicit. I mean, we saw the hints of that going into this. We saw, uh, and this is one of the few things that I think Fionn Whitehead did a really good job with, was all of a sudden he starts to notice the girls around, and he starts to he starts to notice the details of their body, and the camera really lingers on those details. And it's not even, 
it's not even the parts of, the, of their bodies that you would sort of consider to be traditional erogenous zones. It's like the it's like the hair going over the back of her ear, or it's like the back of her neck, or you know the the back of her knee. It just speak for yourself. The back of the neck is a great spot. <laughs> There's a moment where he's standing behind Sailor in line, and those are the areas that he and the camera linger on. And I found that pretty fascinating. I even found it fascinating as he was putting his hands on them, completely unwarranted. I mean, there's a moment where he grabs Sayla's breast as she is putting on uh, his spacesuit, which is a moment that, in any other context, I would describe as sexual assault. In this context, it's hard to say for sure that that's what's going on, because it does. it's not clear that either of them understand that to be the case. It's not clear that either of them understand that to be a breach of boundaries or a breach of consent. We know that because we are adults and we live in civilization, but they don't know that. And for the movie to depict that in, in this sort of forcibly innocent way I found very interesting and I was expecting them to carry that through to this sex scene as well because you know we saw them we saw Zach interact with uh, I think the character was uh, Julie played by uh, Quintessa Swindell and she was the first one to sort of reciprocate his interest in kind of rubbing bodies together and kind of just grinding on each other and just sort of the awkward sexuality of teenagers who don't really know what the fuck they're doing and again that would have been very interesting because this is I mean, this is a moment of catharsis for them. It's a moment of despair for them. They're supposed to procreate, so let's get on with it. It's a moment of, of human sexuality being presented as something sort of primeval, that even these these adult children who have no idea what they're doing can kind of fumble their way into. And what do we get instead was they're lying in bed together, fully clothed, and then uh, Sayla leans over and gives Christopher an alarmingly skillful kiss. And then they just kind of start making out, and then the camera fades to black. And I'm just like, okay, well, I just watched a conventional fucking PG-13 sex scene like I would see on the CW. <laughs> well, I, I wonder what the stage direction was for them. Like, if they even brought up, like, well, try to have, like, a clumsy kiss, and, or, or try to, you know, be awkward and bump into each other and, and kind of, like, you know, kind of laugh and, and be, be awkward. And we don't get any of that. It's very sultry and very seductive. And then all of a sudden they're finished. And then Zach is there and he's like, it's time to it's time to initiate the chase scenes because I'm going to kill you. Yeah, I mean, it compounds, it compounds a problem that existed throughout the film, which is that these kids would have, and I keep calling them kids because that's how, they're, that's how their behavior is coded. We're also old, so it, it, it works. But they keep having conversations that I don't believe that they would have the intellectual capacity to have. And that's a real problem over the course of this. Like, I don't believe they would have the emotional intelligence to have. I don't believe they would understand enough context to have these conversations. And that is ultimately, I mean, what is happening between these two, they're having sex with each other because they like each other and they're attracted to each other. But they are having conversation. They are having intercourse, if you will, on a level that I don't believe they are capable of, of performing because that is just what the script decides they need to do. And I feel like this is something the movie had a very uneven level of decision-making on because it, it wanted to depict that awkward sexuality, but I think it wanted to pathologize that as a specific wrong thing that was wrong about Zack. And because these two were able to restrain themselves and stick to vanilla, you know, missionary in the dark, that makes them okay, and that makes him something else. And I think that is just a much less interesting storytelling choice. Well, it's very basic. And how dare you bash missionary in the dark? It is a classic, tried and true, okay? Just because you want your sex swings and whatever doesn't mean everybody else is comfortable with that. 
Well, I will say that was the moment where I fully tuned out of the film. By this point, uh, Zach has gone full Lord of the Flies. He, uh, you know, he's he's concocted this entire alien threat here after very QAnon esque. And and again, it was a very interesting moment when he because what happens is Richard and Zach were originally supposed to go outside, and I fully expected Zach to just fucking murder Richard at yeah. this point. Um, because he's angry about the drugs, he's angry about the lies, and and he wants to kind of take control and, and, and assert himself. But instead, what ends up happening is Zach just kind of fucks off. So Christopher, who kind of has mixed feelings about the whole situation, but fundamentally we never really think he's a threat, goes outside with him instead. And instead, some mysterious force drifts in and Richard just dies, or gets zapped and dies. And so for the entire, so first of all, what did you think had happened when that, when that occurred? Uh, I thought that there was an alien. They were telling me there's an alien. I said, sure, I don't know what kind of movie this is, so why not? That is fair. I, I thought there was a possibility there could be an alien. I did vaguely remember something involving, uh, like the, uh, the choir kids and Lord of the Flies going on a hunt for a, mo- for a, a monster that didn't actually exist. So I, th- I, I had that vaguely in the back of my mind, like maybe yeah. this is just that, um, but I, I also thought it was possible that Christopher had somehow murdered Richard, and that was how it was going to be revealed. It, it was unclear, like, because Christopher was further away from Richard, so I didn't know how he could have done that. Yeah, and he was also facing away. I mean, the movie gives us a lot of information to support his version of events, which is, I don't know what happened, he just got zapped. Also, he brings him back inside, which he wouldn't have done if, his, if he was looking to kill the guy. Well, yeah, there, there was a loud noise, and then there was, like, a shadow or something that, that kind of flashes yep. across the screen. So there was enough information to make you think, oh, well, maybe it was an alien. Uh, it becomes very clear uh, soon after that there is no alien, that the alien is just something that they're making up as, as the big bag while they all go crazy and have their spring break. Yeah, I gotta hand it to them. I mean, there are a number of tense scenes in the cafeteria, but I was expecting it to take longer for the surveillance video showing that uh, that Zach interestingly did not plan on murdering Richard. He just wanted to mess with him a little bit. And this is another instance of, in much the same way as these characters are wading into sexuality without understanding it, they're wading into violence without understanding it. And if the movie had fully committed to that idea that this guy could completely innocently just murder somebody without realizing what that means, without realizing, without even intending to do it in that moment, and how do we judge that as a, as a civilization that has no context to judge that sort of action. And that, again, that could have been very interesting, but they don't go there at all. Instead, uh, Zach is just like, yeah, I did it. I'll fucking do it again. I saw the alien get into him. I knew it wasn't him anymore. That made me laugh. It's a very 2020 move. Here's evidence of you doing that wrong thing. No, it's not. It's the deep state that's concocting this. I did the right thing. Everyone's like, yeah, deep state. Let's go kill it. I think you're right, and I think the movie was very much trying to make that point, especially when he picks a random person of color to murder in that scene. But uh, uh, but I I was just I was I had lost it at that point. He was going full caveman. I will get you more food. I will protect you from the alien. I am the strongest caveman, so follow me. <laughs> like I I'm like, how are you gonna get more food? The food's just like in a storage facility on the ship. Yeah, the whole food thing and, like, the refrigerator's breaking down and they need to fix it. And that was the emergency. That was another emergency that Zach conjured up himself. Right. Because uh, he is the chief engineer. Um, I I just didn't believe it. Like, again, it's like you say. There's only one source of food. The fucking frigera- refrigerator and food synthesizer. <laughs> like, Yeah, the replicator, right? Yeah. If the replicator doesn't work, we're not eating, so... Yeah, you're, you're not hunting for food aboard the ship. You're just making sure the machines stay working. Yeah, and, like, we get weapons, and I just didn't care yeah, about any ones. of it. Like, 
I was just waiting for the film to be over at that point. Like, I like the gusto of the kids trying to, like, hunt each other down because, like, they seem to be having fun with those scenes, as any actor probably would. I just didn't care. And <laughs> I didn't care about the mission because I know they're not going to love to see it. I didn't care about the hunting scene with the blasters because why are you blasting shit on a ship? On a spaceship? Like, that's... At the very least, it seems like whatever guns you have on board a spaceship should not be capable of breaching the outside of that spaceship, and it becomes clear that it's at least able to break the windows. Uh, I, I literally have a scene header in here, just to tell you how thoroughly checked out I was at this point. They have a dumb fight in the dumb airlock. That's in my notes here. The airlock fight, I thought of, of you uh, when, when, uh, when witnessing it, because it seemed like when Zack was hanging out of the airlock, he probably should have been more fucked up physically than he was. And I was like, well, Glenn, being a space nerd who thinks space <laughs> is the greatest thing in, in existence, probably says scientifically that's not possible. I uh, I actually, you, you brought this up to me on the night, and I actually disagreed with your interpretation. Because they have so much atmosphere put rushing past him as he's going through, I think he would be frostbitten almost immediately. And I think he'd be in pretty serious physical jeopardy, but he would not, he'd still be able to breathe. There's still air pressure going past him. Um you know, until the air on the ship runs out, basically, which would happen a lot faster than than is depicted there. Um, the air just kind of keeps rushing out of there forever. And the same fucking thing happens in Passengers, too. There's a moment where there's a moment on there where Chris Pratt and Jennifer Lawrence are uh, are making their way through the ship and they find a door that the spaceship doesn't want to let them through. Um, and there's some sort of and neither one of them knows what the fuck they're doing. They're not crew members. And so he fucking pries the door open and opens up a basketball-sized hole. And, of course, the other side of that door is open into the vacuum of space. So the entire atmosphere of the ship, which is the size of a fucking cruise liner, is trying to evacuate its way past his face, which is now lodged in that hole, as he's trying to pull it a- pull it ahead. It's just one of the many ways in which those characters were very, very stupid in that film. Um, this one, I-, I don't know, it... <sighs> I didn't care anymore how that fight ended. I obviously knew the bad guy was going to go out the airlock and the good guys, maybe one or more of them would also go out the airlock. I I wasn't certain that Christopher was going to survive that fight. I also didn't care all that much because he was a terrible leader. Um, He's really bad. He was elected. Another failure of democracy. He was elected leader unanimously. Uh, Well, not unanimously, but close. And Zach's pissed at the outcome, as most election losers are. Uh, so he goes to Mar-a-Lago on the ship and then plots his revenge. And I just, I, I laughed at the whole democracy angle to it because these kids would have no context on politics. All of a sudden, now they're voting and they're like coming up with factions. Like, it's, it felt very silly. Yeah, that they would have the words for what it is they're doing and they wouldn't have to figure any of that out. I, f- I feel like there might be a longer version of this movie where, you know, if there, if there was like a two hour version of this movie where you have a little more of them figuring out the words for some of these things that they're coming up with on the fly. Again, that could be a very boring movie and maybe that's why they cut <laughs> it down. But every conversation in the first act of this film felt completely truncated to me. Anytime a scene was about to get interesting, it would just cut and move on to the next scene. And that's, I, I, it just limited my engagement. So are you asking for the Snyder cut of this film? <laughs> I am emphatically not asking for that, and nobody wants that. Please do not start hashtagging it. It's, it's not going to happen. You don't want a four-hour version of this where they're like, okay, so we have to do an election. And everyone's like, what the fuck is that? 
Uh, Neil Berger already turned the movie Limitless uh, into a TV series. That's the one about Bradley Cooper getting smart pills. So I, I don't think we need to give any any additional runtime to the premise of this film. I think we've seen all the depth that it had to muster. <laughs> so at the very end, we see that they are able to effectively procreate. Um, and they eventually, as they get older and, and, and the kids grow up and then the kids get older, and then we see that they make it to this magical planet where I assume they're going to colonize it, destroy the native populace, and eradicate the species on the planet. There were a couple of pretty cool shots during that sequence. This film was fond of using uh, running down the hallway to show the passage of time. Big fan of hallways. Yeah. And it, it takes that very... Well, there's one big corridor running down the center of the ship because, um, you know, it's a long, skinny, spinning ship. They go ahead and, and take that literally. Like, we see people getting older. We see kids running down that hallway until we finally get to the uh, the big the big bay window at the end and we see them overlooking the planet. This is as we hear a Colin Farrell voiceover and it's the last little word from Richard... I'd have to say we've said very little about Colin Farrell's performance. He was actually one of my favorite actors in this film. I think he did a very good job with what with what he was given. Um, I don't think the movie delivered on the de- on the depth of what this character was was given because he had the job of stating the movie's themes out loud, and uh, unfortunately the movie just failed to deliver on those. Um, he basically says, "So tomorrow we go." And as we begin our journey, I think about the world we're leaving behind and how I've seen it at its best and its worst and how we'll have our own bad times. I mean, they're coming. There's nothing I can do about it. But I also know you will prevail. At our best, we'll live on. That we are worth saving. You know, that's a fine collection of platitudes about the inherent value of mankind, but I don't really know how this movie established or made any of that believable, so... I tell you, when Zack gets to that planet eventually, floating in space, he's going to be pissed. I don't think he's going to get there, but it depends on how how hard they threw him away from the ship, because he's probably going to continue in whatever direction they were going. Maybe they'll have to slow down as they're approaching the planet, mm-hmm. so he'll keep float. He'll actually beat them there and go flying past the planet, I should think. He's going to be pissed. No, he's going to be dead, Daniel. That's, that's how space works. I told you I knew how space works. Mm-hmm. Well, any that's final true. thoughts about the film? Well, you made me watch it, so that's complete. No, I, I think in terms of uh, it's a Lord of the Flies in space, so that, that's gonna have a limiting appeal. Um, I think the the actors did fine with the material because the material was kind of a letdown. I thought the combat and, and the uh, the action scenes were pretty boring, <laughs> yeah. like with the blasters and then like the a little bit of the hand to hand combat. It's all very predictable, but I think uh, Lily Rose Depp uh, and Colin Farrell, like you said, uh, probably were the strongest performances. Yeah, it's nice to have a Depp we can admire again. And uh, apart from that, I yeah, I don't. Do you have, think she goes pirate? I don't know. It's 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 always possible. That does tend to run in families, much like a list acting. Am I right? Do you know who we owe uh, for giving Lily Rose Depp her start in acting? And the, uh, the answer is Kevin Smith. Um, she had a very small part in the movie Tusk, the one where a podcaster gets kidnapped and turned into a walrus. Uh, Lily Rose Depp, as well as Kevin Smith's own daughter, Harley Quinn Smith, were, were in that film. And they returned for the second chapter of the True North trilogy, which, uh, what was it, Yoga Hosers? I didn't bother seeing it. I, I, I love Kevin Smith, but whatever he's doing with those movies, I, I was just like, I think I've moved on from this. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, hold on. His daughter is named Harley Quinn. Yes. <laughs> the man is a huge nerd. I, I, I hope you know, I know about I, him. No, I know. Like, that's just exceptionally nerdy, but okay. It is. Uh, but yeah, they're uh, they're both of an age to start acting at this point. Yeah, so good for them. Know. 
Uh, yeah, you know, uh, I'll give Ty Sheridan another chance. I don't think he was terrible or anything. I just think that he, as a as a leading man, he was pretty vanilla. Ty Sheridan brought some emotional, brought the capacity for emotional depth to a role where the character's capacity for emotional depth was constantly in question. So I wasn't really sure how to evaluate this performance. There just wasn't a lot to it. Um, you know, did I buy that he and Sailor were falling in love? I don't think either one of them could describe it in that way or really understand it on any level. Um, but yeah, Ty Sheridan was, I've seen him in a couple of movies when he was younger. Mud, he was outstanding in. He was also in a movie called Joe with Nicolas Cage, uh, which was weirdly similar to Mud in terms of its plot. It was just a much more serious movie. Uh, but uh, he, I, I, he is very good, and I would love to see him in more things. And hopefully this is not the end of his career. <laughs> it shouldn't be. I don't, th- I don't think a film like this, you know, neuters anybody's, you know, acting talents. I think it's just a, it's one of those films like you have it on your acting resume. It's, it's another entry. Well, that brings us to the end of our discussion of Space Fuckers. If you have any feedback on our discussion, feel free to email us. There was very limiting sex, Glenn. There was. Uh, If you you have any feedback on our discussion of Voyagers, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com. And now on to our review of Short Term 12. You need to get ready because it's so unbelievable. It's going to seem fake, but I promise you it's not Graceful Vashborn. It depends if you tell it right. There is no way not to tell this right. It is a storyteller's wet dream. (laughs) Short term 12, this is Grace. Remember, you're not their parent, you're not their therapist. You are here to create a safe environment, and that's it. Got it. Luis, you better be up. So this is how it's gonna be. Community meeting is now in session. Mm, slow this down a little bit. Yeah. Y'all, y'all ain't got no rhythm, man. Mace, I love you like a brother, but I gotta say that when it come to being discreet, you're a disgrace. I mean, he think we all don't know about him and Grace on the low, undercover, trying to date. <laughs> so nice to me well it's easy you are the weirdest and most beautiful person that i've ever met you need to tell me what the hell is going on you have to let me in your head once in a while i'm just gonna go nuts of our community. She's been in and out of group homes with dangerous behavior. I told her father we take good care of her. I take good care of everyone. Happy birthday. I really think we need to talk through some of this stuff. Tonight. All right, now. I just need to work. Jaden, come on. Please, just open the door. That was from the trailer of Short Term 12, the film written and directed by Destin Daniel Cretton based on his own 22-minute short film, which was a thesis project at film school. The film stars Brie Larson, John Gallagher Jr., Caitlin Deaver, Rami Malek, Keith Stanfield, as he was then known. Uh, We now know him better as Lakeith Stanfield, uh, as well as Stephanie Beatrice. Um, This film is notable for a few things. First of all, how many awards that its cast have gone on to uh, to win? Brie Larson and Rami Malek are Academy Award winners. Rami Malek, in addition to that, is an Emmy, SAG, and BAFTA Award winner. Lakeith Stanfield is now an Academy Award nominee uh, for his role in Judas and the Black Messiah. And uh, Stephanie Beatriz uh, is, uh, I don't believe she's been award nominated, but she has uh, done several critically acclaimed turns on television on the likes of Brooklyn Nine-Nine and BoJack Horseman, where I might add her voice could not be more dissimilar to uh, to the voice that she uses in this film. 
Caitlin Deaver is also a Golden Globe nominee. And John Gallagher Jr. is a Tony Award winner. He's gone on to some fame on Broadway. So uh, this film, man, uh, the casting of this film, unfortunately I don't have the casting director's name here in front of me, but uh, they really did a good job with it. <laughs> they, well, they uh, got lucky. To... I mean, aside from being astute in terms of uh, ascertaining talent, they just got lucky. I'm going to call out... Uh, I'm going. I'm just going to call him Lakeith Stanfield for the rest of the film because that is how I've known him for his entire career here, and that is, of course, his actual name. But Lakeith Stanfield apparently had quit acting. Uh, he was in Destin Daniel Cretton's original short film. Apparently, he was a schoolmate at uh, at film school, and uh, and he had actually quit acting. And this was in like 20, 2011, 2012, and did not own a cell phone. So Destin Daniel Cretton wanted to get him back to reprise his role as Marcus in the feature version of the film. But he almost could not get a hold of him, and if not for him being able to track him down via email, we might not have gotten the beautiful uh, career that is Lakeith Stanfield's uh, career. Gone on to lead performances in the likes of Crown Heights, Sorry to Bother You, um, some amazing work on Atlanta, really just one of the best working actors today. And it's amazing to think what a near miss this was. This film is... It features these actors who are all, you know, in their early twenties when they did these roles, uh, with the exception of Caitlin Deaver, who plays one of the uh, one of the teenagers. Uh, they are working in a facility called Short Term Twelve, which is a county uh, facility for dealing with troubled teens, uh, teens who are dealing with issues of uh, of behavior, issues of abuse, um, children who are between foster homes uh, or are otherwise just uh, just not able to not able to take care of themselves, or essentially wards of the state. Um, or are otherwise not under the care of their parents. So this is obviously based on real things that existed. Apparently, uh, the short film was based on Destin Daniel Cretton's uh, actual experience working in one of these places um, as a uh, as a line staff, essentially as the role that uh, that Grace Howard, who is uh, Brie Larson's character, is playing in this film. And in the short film, uh, the character was uh, was male. Um, and that was one of the, that was the big change that he made from the short film to the uh, uh, to the feature was he made made her into a woman and kind of gave her uh, and she is also uh, she also learns that she is pregnant toward the beginning of this film, um, and we kind of see her processing that in various ways over the course of the film. But uh, but yeah, fundamentally, this is just about watching a bunch of adults and seeing how they take care of a bunch of troubled teens. And that's the sort of premise that feels like awards bait, but this film was largely ignored by the awards uh, circuit when it ha- uh, when it came out, and has subsequently gained quite a following among uh, among critics uh, since then. So, Daniel, I was not expecting this film to be such an interesting thematic counterpoint to Voyagers, but I'm I'm happy that it worked out that way. Uh, so I'll go ahead and put it to you. What did you think of this film? You know, there's uh, an an aspect of this film that they roll out in the first scene, which is. They can't touch the kegs if they get past the gate. That is already far more interesting than anything that Voyager's presenting. <laughs> and implicitly, that means they can touch the kids if they catch them before they get to the Exactly. So this is a secure facility, and they are meant to tackle these children if they try to escape. Um, and also if they try to harm themselves. I'm just going to toss this. I, I tossed this out earlier in the uh, in the episode, but uh, I want to go ahead and put a content warning here, which I'll also put on the page for the episode. Uh, there are some very serious issues broached in this film, from suicide and suicidal ideation to uh, to, to physical and sexual abuse, and uh, as well as self harm uh, behaviors and uh, and issues of mental illness. This is not a film for uh, for people who will have trouble watching these issues depicted. In a very, I would say, respectful and realistic sort of way on screen. Um, so I just want to throw that out there. 
But uh, but yeah, many of these kids are dealing with serious issues. Many of them have full-on meltdowns. And Daniel, I got to say, what's been on my mind since we saw this film was Adam Toledo, uh, the 13-year-old boy who was shot dead by, by a Chicago police officer uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And the body cam video of that just came out today. And it's it's horrible, and I would encourage anybody not uh, listening not to watch it. Um, there's just no upside to it. What I wanted to see for myself was that he had his hands in the air and he was unarmed. At least he was, didn't have a gun in his hand. And the officer had no reason to shoot him, no reason to... There's no reason why that kid shouldn't still be alive today. And as I'm watching a movie depicting how social workers deal with kids who are having full-on meltdowns, sometimes with uh, with like a, a blade in their hand trying to harm themselves or others, and they just kind of grab them and pull them to the ground. They're spitting on them. They're they're having they're having full-on meltdowns. And I'm watching these 22 year olds deal with that without without having guns without tasing them without pepper spraying them without harming them in any way and i'm just like why is this not the model here why can we not care for these troubled teens in a way that results in them being alive at the end of our care or at least having a chance at that you know the answer to that we ask police officers in this country to do way too much and they're ill-equipped yeah I mean, the, the implicit answer here is this is a county that, that does an adequate job of funding mental health care for, for troubled teens. And if these if these kids were not in a facility like this, many of them might be dead at the hands of the police. Well, they, they relay that the, the, the story that Mason tells at the very beginning, which is a hilarious story on how, like, he, you know, he, he Which ends with him shitting his pants. Yeah, he pooped himself, like, you know, following a kid who got, got past the gate. But then... The tail end of that story, the part that he doesn't like saying is that kid got past the gate a couple of days later and was found dead in the bushes, you know, a couple of weeks after that. Yeah, and there's a very interesting moment from John Gallagher as Mason here where he reacts to to Grace just kind of nonchalantly delivering that detail. And we learn we learn a little something about both of their characters in that moment because Grace delivers that detail like it ain't no thing. She's telling Rami Malek's character, uh, who is playing Nate, who is the new guy, and essentially the audience surrogate, the one who's going to kind of naively approach this material, uh, who's going to, you know, show his ass a couple times. At one point, he, he says, I've always wanted to work with underprivileged teens, and he says that directly to the underprivileged teens. Just rookie mistake right there yeah <laughs> totally I, but a totally credible moment though i, totally I felt bad for me i was like this ain't good job for you bro you gotta get out of there you, you you're you're meant to sing songs on stage <laughs> yeah it but but again i bought him as that character there wasn't a lot to him though he was just kind of the new guy we obviously I kept waiting for him Malik to do more because i'm like it's rami malik like well ditto, ditto stephanie beatrice who's barely who you know she's kind of a side character and barely does anything in this movie because she's uh, because you know obviously this is early in her career so but yeah john gallagher jr as mason reacts to this and is just like yeah i don't really like that part of the story and i took that to be i don't know naivety or like he was brushing over the uh the ugly parts of the story yes but as the movie goes on it's it becomes clearer and clearer that Mason does not have trouble facing reality. He just has better coping skills when it comes to when it comes to compartmentalizing the details of that reality. And in many ways, he is a he is functioning better with these issues than some of the other people in his life. And I found I found that that dichotomy very interesting. Yeah, he seems to be he seems to have it together at least somewhat, right? Like the, the job itself is is very stressful. I couldn't do it. Like if a child spat on me, I'm gonna put their head through a wall. So yeah, that's that's probably a deal breaker for you working in that. Probably job. shouldn't do that job. Yeah, um, 
But I, I think I think the cast that they uh, cobbled together here is, is, is just excellent across the board. I'm really surprised that this film did not get any sort of awards buzz because it, it, it tells a very tight story that is pretty deep and, and, and fairly moving at times and, and does so with just really great performances. You know, like Brie Larson, I mean, she's always great, but... She's really good as Grace. Like, I really bought her her pain and, and her struggles. Uh, Mason, also very, very good. I mean, Nate, Nate, uh, Rami and Malikus, like, like you said, he doesn't really have a lot to do. He, he serves as the surrogate, all you surrogate. But he's still, like, just the way that he was just kind of reacting uh, to certain situations. I'm like, yep, I would react the same way. And I guess I, I felt like this story was just really well told even though it goes into some really dark places. I think that Brie Larson is an absolute standout here. And for the way, the ways in which we're introduced to her character, because she's the boss. Well, she's not the ultimate boss. The, the ultimate boss is a guy named Jack played by France Turner, but she's the boss of the line staff. The people who are just kind of there to hang out with the kids, to do whatever they're willing to do, whether that's play with them, whether that's do music or art with them, whether that's, uh, you know, police what privileges they're allowed to to have based on what level they have. There's a level drop. Levels. Exactly, yeah. Um, and they're, it's very interesting because one of the first things that Grace says to Nate is, you are not their parent, their friend, or their therapist. And then we see her with a mix of sort of steely-eyed competence and also emotional intelligence and vulnerability exhibiting all of those things she acts like a parent she acts like a friend she acts like a therapist but it's all very clear that she is doing all of this in service of the greater goal of of helping these children cope and of giving them something that they that they never had before and of just helping them get through this and and helping them get through this without harming themselves or others and it is such a hard job um and i really and as we see we see how competent she is we see how well, she has it together with her job, and then we see how what a difficult time she has with her own trauma and her own history. And watching the the interplay between those issues over the course of the film is just absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it must uh, it must be very difficult to play two separate parts, like in your life. Like I'm not saying like from an acting perspective. I'm saying that you go into work and you have to be a certain personality type, and you have to act. You, you have to get through a certain amount of stress. And then when you go home, you're basically one Iggy. And now you can't handle things. And now you're overwhelmed. And like being able to ring it in for eight to ten hours a day while dealing with highly emotional children, I, I, like, I don't understand how that character doesn't just fall apart. Yeah, we get some early hints as to the nature of her trauma with a... Uh, with a and again, this made me look back on the sex scene from Voyagers even more negatively because this film where, where voyagers was afraid to go there this film went there it showed a sex scene between uh between mason and grace who are in fact dating as well as uh, her being his boss um they're they're in a long-term relationship and live together uh and we see we see her initiate uh she starts making out with him and he's not sure if she's really into it. And he is being very respectful and being very respectfully hesitant here in a way that makes me, that makes it seem like this is an area where she has some issues. This is an area where she has some prior trauma. And he, he's very kind of verbally saying like, are you sure? Are, are you sure this is okay? Before he does anything. 
And then it turns out it's not okay by the end of this. Like she thinks it's okay as the scene is starting, but, but as they start, you know, they start making out a little bit more in a second, she flips. And in a second, she slaps him in the face and they never talk about it again. Mm -hmm. They don't talk about it at the end of that scene. They don't talk about it afterward. This is clearly part of their relationship that is just a continuing struggle for them. And, and the, the ease with which they deal with this, or I, I mean, I guess the non the nonverbal ways in which they deal with this suggest that this is not a new issue. Yeah, it's happened before. And I, I think that Mason mentions that they hadn't had sex in nine days. Which, you know, when you're 22 is kind of a long like, time in a committed relationship is a long time. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I was like, nine days? Like, that's nothing, pal, but okay. Yeah, we're old, married, and boring, Daniel. We don't count. And of course, we learn more about that over the course of the film here. And I think we will eventually have to get into spoilers here. But it goes the same way with the kids because the characters, the workers at this facility, um, the movie makes a very interesting storytelling choice of they tell Nate, here are their files. Here's where you can learn about all the shit that they've been through and all the shit that's happened to them. But we don't get that information. We have to we have to learn about it through the ways in which they act. And it's very much it plays out in the same way as that sex scene between between these two adults. We have to infer what has happened to these kids based on how they act. And uh, obviously not in a sexual context because that's not happening in the facility. But, that would be inappropriate. Um, that would be very inappropriate, yes. But we do have to we do have to infer how, based on, you know, Keith Stanfield, Lakeith Stanfield is delivering some depth here because he starts off as just a very sullen and, and enclosed teenager who's clearly very angry and clearly just barely keeping it together. And he's he's a short timer. He's about to leave. He's about to age out of the facility when he turns 18. And he's clearly not handling it well. And so much of that is just conveyed non-verbally in Stanfield's performance. But also, all he wants, he doesn't want anything special for the party. He just wants his head shaved. And we don't know why that is. It's just a detail we have to throw in the box. It goes the same way with Jaden. She just wants to go home and be with her dad, um, you know. And and she, but she's kind of got this this uh, sort of defensive sarcasm going on. And and I'm just like, is this normal teenage defense mechanism here, or is there something more going on there? Like you keep you keep having to unpack this as because you know there's a reason why they're in this facility, and we just don't know what that reason is. Yeah, what was Sammy's reason? They mentioned that Sammy's sister died. He's not a major character. I don't mind talking about this, but um, they mentioned that his sister died and they mentioned that he's not handling it well. So he has some sort of behavioral issue in relation to that. He's kept all of his sister's dolls. And at one point he ends up having to get rid of those. Apparently his therapist decides it's time for those to go into storage and uh, for him to sort of cope without them. And this is an issue where this is another another point of conflict over the course of the film because the line staff is there with them every day. And gets to see and hear their their feelings on these issues every day, but their therapists are only seeing them, you know, once every few days or once a week. So, they the line staff, even though they don't have the qualifications of the therapist, they think they know better, and in some cases, maybe they do know better. Um, and that is that is another source of conflict over the course of the film here, because they're not the therapists aren't wrong exactly. They're trying to do the same thing. They want the same thing, and they're doing the best they can. But they just might have different information or might have different. Well, they don't have the day to day interactions. And so, yeah, when you're when you're working at that level with someone, you feel like you really understand them, uh, even if you don't have like I guess the technical expertise to get to the heart of the issue. Yeah, and of course, working in a place like this is probably great clinical experience if you should decide to pursue that that academically further on, you know, further along in your career. If you're applying for for school for you know some of the postgraduate degrees that apparently some of these therapists require, having worked in a place like this is probably going to be great experience for that. 
It sounds miserable to me, but I'm glad some people like it. I, I meant great experience in terms of being on your CV, not no, so no, much I in know, terms I of it being, a, being happy fun. I appreciated the scene at the beginning, and of course there's another scene that's sort of a counterpoint to that at the end of the film as well, um, where they're they're just kind of swapping war stories as uh, as a couple of them are out smoking, and they're just kind of taking a break. And I liked... I liked that banter and I liked the implication that this was nothing new and that, uh, you know, some time has passed and now Nate's kind of part of the gang. He's got a little bit more experience. And I don't know. I've seen I've seen so many renditions of this scene when it's prison guards and the prison guards are always, you know, these are the people who wanted to beat the shit out of people but weren't good enough to pass the cop exam. Like, let's be honest. Wow. Wow. Okay. Well, let's uh, hope you never go to prison and those prison guards listen to our podcast. I feel like if I go to prison, the the guards listening to my podcast would be the least of my worries. But um, but apart from that, I, I like the idea of these of these these guys swapping these war stories in a way that makes it very clear that they care about the kids and they remember the kids. And I don't know if it makes them feel more like more like teachers, more like foster parents, more like something closer to a normal relationship for these kids. Yeah, I never uh, felt and, like they were guards. They, they, they yeah. were, you know, administrators. They were facilitators. You know, they, they were a bunch of different roles rolled into one. Yeah, I mean, keeping the tone of keeping the tone of a scene where they're physically restraining one of the teens, holding them on the ground as as they're screaming and spitting and yelling at them, and just kind of keeping like we're just not going to engage. We're just, you know, we're we're just gonna let you uh, let you rage this out, and then you're gonna go into the, you're gonna go into a padded room and beat the shit out of an inflatable stuffed animal. Uh, which, incidentally, uh, did I did I ever tell you my mom worked in a facility like this once when she was much younger? Uh, I, I'm actually gonna have to uh, tell tell her a little bit about this film because she mentioned that they had a room like this uh, to me once that they yeah. had like a padded room where you could beat the shit out of a stuffed animal. She didn't say use those exact words, but um, this is apparently a common technique in this area with troubled kids is just give them something to get their rage out. When I was young, um, so like uh, like first grade, um, I definitely recall going to physical therapy and having that inflatable, like, inflatable person that you could, like, you know, try to do, like, punch and, and shove around and, and play with. I, oh, I definitely remember that as part of the physical therapy training. I, yeah. I have a speech impediment, which I'm sure has come out many, many times on the podcast. So I, I definitely understand, uh, at least uh, going back to the movie here, uh, pivoting. Uh, like I, I felt for these kids, right? Like I, I, I haven't suffered trauma per se, but I definitely understand, you know, being behind, being behind the ball a little bit, right? And, and how that makes you feel. And for like, you know, a kid like Sammy who can't process his sister dying, or Marcus who is, you know, scared about what the outside world looks like. And he delivers a great rap. Which basically outlines here is my trauma, <laughs> and here yeah. is my outlook on life, and it's it's beautiful. Like it's a beautiful, like, it's a beautiful piece of acting. Like e- each one of these kids just has has something holding them down, holding them back, and I, I definitely I felt sorry and, and sympathetic for them. Yeah, there's. I, I think we should go ahead and get into spoilers here because I do want to talk about where it goes in more specifics with some of these kids. But um, but I want to talk about another scene where uh, it's the scene with the taco party. Uh, there is a taco party in this film, and and uh, initially I was like, oh, is it taco night? Is this visiting day at the? No, they were they were actually going to Mason's foster parents' house, uh, where his uh, where his his foster parents, who he just knows as Ma and Pa. 
uh, who were this this older this elderly Hispanic couple uh, who took him in as a foster child and apparently took in a great many others over the years uh, you know who lived with them for a couple of years here a couple of years there so they're in this room surrounded by this family that they've created of all these kids who benefited from from being under their care who lived under their roof who got to experience what it was like to have a home and to have a family and we really we get this this sweet and warm moment of all these kids coming back and saying hey you gave this to us we didn't get this from our own parents and you you decided to become our parents you decided to give that to us and what a service to us what a what a gift of yourselves and it's such a sweet moment, and it's it's one of the few moments of sort of lightness and warmth in the film, apart from sort of the uh, sort of the, the the lighthearted war stories that they're telling each other. So um, I really appreciated that. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, as a cynic, I was waiting for Masek's dad to be like, "And now I collect your debt. <laughs> <laughs> you owe me for rent. You, you you owe me a lot. You just said I I gave everything to you. Well, now it's my turn to collect. Yeah." I was waiting for that moment, but no, this is a sweet, sweet scene. <laughs> yeah, you 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 mentioned uh, Lakeith Stanfield's performance here as as Marcus, and not just in terms of laying out his trauma, but also the extent to which he laid out that this is not his first rodeo. He's been here at this place for yeah. a while. They imply that in various ways over the course of the film before explicitly confirming it near the end. And there's a great moment where. Another kid is having is having some trouble, and he's clearly bothered by this. And when I say having trouble, I mean having a full-on meltdown in the next room. And he's he's clearly concerned about this. He's worried about this other kid, and he ends up uh, going into the TV room where all the other kids are just hanging out and watching fucking Shark Week. And he brings a bunch of art supplies in, and he says, all right, everybody take one. And boy, that that moment right there... Again, I'm going to keep dumping on Voyagers here, but that was a better moment of leadership than we ever saw from from Christopher and, on Voyagers. Well, Christopher took a lot of the blue and had to develop socially. Yeah, and I mean, what it ends up being is is again a very sweet moment uh, with with these kids kind of banding together and looking after each other, and they've all got problems. But what this movie has going on, despite delving into sort of the darkest depths of of man's inhumanity to its children. It's got an ultimately uplifting contention that humans thrive on forming a little tribe, on lifting each other up and cradling each other in their arms in their times of need. And that even even kids who are having a really hard time themselves have a natural inclination toward that. And it could not be a more opposite contention to the half-baked Lord of the Flies bullshit of Voyager. Right. People will form communities. <laughs> yeah, we formed them in the first place. You know, the idea of this post-apocalypse where you're just sitting in your basement with your fucking arsenal. Like, first of all, your neighbor who didn't plan as well as you is going to come over and murder you. Easily. But like, but like what else is going to happen is we're going to form new. We're going to form a new town. We're going to form a new group. We're going to look after each other because we did that at one time. Yes, there will be warlords. And yes, <laughs> like those some of us will do will better fight. than others. Yeah, but there's going to be towns. There's going to be a marketplace. Someone's going to say, what about health care for all? And that other person's going to get punched in the face. Like, yeah, I mean, you, you almost feel like the best advantage that these kids kids have is they have a community that knows what healthy functioning adulthood should look like and they have something to strive for what the kids on voyagers have is they don't have any of that background and they just kind of have to invent it for themselves and what they do is a half-baked lord of the flies bullshit exactly. so this movie filled me with warm feelings
feelings in a way that I was really not expecting over the course uh, at the beginning of it. I think it's time to get into spoilers. I think we've talked quite a bit about performances and like how how we felt about the film and some of the narrative arcs. So I think it's time to talk about some of that uh, deep deep drama. Indeed. So, uh, yeah, my content warning, I will just reiterate from here, we're going to be talking about the, the deep and dark issues going on in this film, so uh, be, be prepared for that. And from here on out, spoilers for Short Term 12. So let's talk about Grace, because it all pivots on Grace, I think. Grace, uh, Grace is not having uh, the best of lives. Grace uh, has some issues with self-harm. She picks at her cuticles, uh, which is a compulsive behavior that I'm, I'm familiar with. I have some people in my life who have had that, who have had that issue and have dealt with that issue uh, through, you know, through professional help on it. And um, it's the sort of self-harm that is a little bit more low-key and a little bit less obvious to people than cutting. And of course, Grace has done that as well. We at one point see the scars on her ankles, and she casually, very casually mentions to Jaden, uh, Caitlin Deaver's character, that she at one time accidentally uh, came very close to slicing through her Achilles tendon. Um, and she's flat out telling this girl who cuts that that cutting is about, you know, when you're when there's blood coming out of you, you can't worry about anything else. All I could do to react to this was just this had the air of authenticity to this. This is not a problem that I've ever had myself. It's not a problem I've ever dealt with personally. So I, I kind of just have to accept what these people who are, you know, who are based on this guy's real experience working in a place like this have to say about why they're doing this to themselves. Yeah. It's a compulsion. Uh, in terms of cutting, I, I've known uh, people in the past that have done that. And, and part of it is that when you're blading, right, that's all you can focus on. And there's also an adrenaline rush you get from it. So yeah. I, 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 I get it theoretically. I've never done it myself, nor felt the inclination to do so. What I felt watching these people talk about these things in such, uh, in, in such clear-eyed terms and really in such uncomplicated terms, like they're not ashamed of it at all. They're just kind of putting it out yeah, there. Yeah, it's a part of them. Uh, and they are uh, what what it, what it had was the air of authenticity to it and that's all i can say about it is all of these as i learned about their about the trauma of these various characters and the ways in which they're coping with it i just wanted to give them a great big hug if that's what they want in that moment <laughs> like that's you know it's it, it's like how i don't know how you can function but you got to find a way if you're going to if you're going to figure out a way to be an adult to have relationships with other people and this is clearly something that Grace struggles with and uh, the ways in which she struggles with her relationship with Mason in light of the in light of the physical and sexual abuse that she has suffered is fundamentally the conflict at the heart of the uh, of the third act of this film because we know what's at stake and it's not just her life, it's the lives of the kids she's looking after. And no matter how well she's compartmentalizing that with her between her workplace and her personal life, all of those walls are kind of breaking down over the course of the film because she's pregnant and she doesn't really want to be. Well, she makes an appointment been, for an abortion straight away and does not want to do this. Well, she's been pregnant in the past. and uh, Which is another hint at the type of trauma she has suffered. Yeah, and uh, so I, I definitely understand why uh maybe not understand but i can i can conceptualize why it's so traumatic for her right don't like like this is the thing that's breaking down down the walls it's not necessarily her relationship with mason or anything to do with work 
It's the fact that now she is kind of mentally back to where she was. Well, and, and something that I know is uh, because it's the sort of thing that professionals in this field talk about a lot is that victims of, uh, of abuse are afraid of passing along that abuse to the next generation. They're always very nervous. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they tend to be very nervous about having kids themselves and about what sort of parents they're going to be, especially if they suffered that abuse at the hands of their own parents, um, as is the case for, for Grace. And, you know, it's, it's something, it's, it's like they say, you know, start your script on the most interesting day of your character's life. Well, this is it. This is her moment of crisis. She's had it together at this place for a long time. And we can see that with how competent she is at her job. But this is the moment where it's potentially going to all fall apart or it's all going to come together. But there's no in between. And Mason, you know, kind of disengaging with her. I understand that perspective as well, right? Like he's giving so much and he's giving very little in return uh, in terms of like emotional just transparency. And yeah, I I would be in in the same position that he is. Like, you know, at a certain point, you just kind of say, this isn't working. I can't, like, you won't open up to me. Do what you want. Yeah, I mean, they've been together for, we don't know how long exactly, but it feels like years at the beginning of this film. Yeah. Like, they've been together for a while, and this has been a recurring problem in their relationship. But again, this is a moment of crisis here that, you know, it, it's great when he when she reveals that she's pregnant. He just kind of retreats to the next room to fucking freak out about it for a minute. <laughs> and then he's just like, give me a minute to, to process that. <laughs> okay, that, that's good for him that he was able to separate himself and not not reacting a way that might set her off. Well, it's good for him, but it's also it also speaks well of their communication within their relationship because these these are two emotionally intelligent people who know that their gut reaction is not necessarily their real reaction, and that gives them some capacity to to really just kind of give each other a pass on what you could call bad behavior if they were doing it on purpose, but they're not. And and you know, their their willingness to their willingness to tolerate those kinds of um, that, that kind of emotional upheaval with each other is obviously going to dictate whether or not they're willing to stay in a relationship or not. But they both mean well, and they both are capable of giving each other what they need. And uh, you know, nothing about this relationship feels unhealthy. They just have issues that they need to deal with, and that is that it's interesting to watch that play out. Like more interesting than you would think from that description. <laughs> Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And uh, Jaden, uh, I, I think her, I started off disliking her character, like not the actress, but just the character. I was like, oh, she's probably just one of those tough, you know, tough on the exterior, but someone like once you break down her wall, she'll open up. But no, she suffered some pretty, pretty severe trauma. <laughs> and her acting out makes a lot of sense. Yeah, the scene with the octopus and shark story, yeah. where she's she's saying that her father is hurting her. And we don't know whether the whether that abuse is sexual or physical or both. We know it's phys- we, it's strongly implied that it's physical. We don't really know if it's sexual or not. But whatever's going on, there's something bad happening at home. And her desire to return to her dad. I mean, we see Grace spelling this out for for Jack because Jack doesn't. She files a report on this, but Jack doesn't agree with her contention and ends up sending her home uh, with her father for a weekend pass. And to a degree, I I empathize with Jack in that scene because Jack is a professional. Jack is, you know, he's having his, uh, he's been doing this longer than she's been around, which, in some, which I would say both gives him competence and gives him blind spots. I think the movie presents that fairly. Um, 
But it also, uh, you know, she is questioning his commitment to the safety of these kids. And he flat out tells her, like, I want to go beat the shit out of every single, you know, I see the pain in their eyes and I want to go, I want to go kill anybody who harmed these kids. But I can't go around accusing every parent of every child who comes in here of being a sexual predator. And given that that is his very, very high stakes job is to make that determination, I empathize with the position that he was in because that is a very hard job to be in because you know you are going to get it wrong some of the time and there's no there's no forgiving yourself. Well, if you're, if you're too much of a crusader, you're going to lose that position, and, Absolutely. Then, and then you can't help any kids. Yeah, and, and Grace ends up like stealing his touch lamp and smashing it into the parking Which lot. Which was he, very he, rude. He ends up using some of his his clear aptitude for de-escalation on her as well um and, and he also seems to have some awareness of her trauma and her issues as well like he tells he at the very least tells her i understand that this is hard for you to deal with given your own history um in in this area and her history is very germane to this issue because her father went to prison for getting her pregnant mm-hmm. through through sexual assault so yeah uh that she turns out to be right does not make the scene that ensues any less harrowing where so she goes marching out of there and uh, I'm going to call it the musical score here by Joel P. West because there's a track here that is absolutely not fucking around. She goes to a house. We don't know what the house is. Did you know what was going on in this scene before before uh, it's revealed? Because I did not. <laughs> we see her go into a house. We see her retrieve a baseball bat and approach an old man lying. Oh, there. 100%. She's going to go bludgeon uh, Jaden's father. Yeah, but I and of course, once Jaden appeared behind her and says, you know, this feels a little extreme, don't you think? Um, Which is almost a moment of breaking tension there. I I still like even though I knew that her father was still in prison, I was like, what are we watching now? Is this a fantasy? Is this a flashback? Is this something that she really did when she was younger? No, because she had followed Jaden when Jaden broke out. And I remember her going into that that building. Oh, that's right. We did see that doorstep already. It was in the day. Uh, the doorsteps at both scenes of the doorstep were at night. So I did not catch that it was the same location. That was a good catch. Um, but nonetheless, that tension gets broken almost immediately. And then, of course, uh, Jaden comes out and, and she's like, well, let me show you mine. And she lifts up her shirt and shows the the belt bruise on the side of her abdomen. And that. That confirms it. She is now a direct witness to the evidence of fresh abuse right there. Yep. Yeah, it turns out uh, Jaden's father is a big fan of the belt. And honestly, this is probably an instance where, assuming that Jaden had survived the weekend, which it certainly seemed like she was going to, because she seems to know how to deal with her dad, or at least her dad is not at a point. I mean, when I say she knows how to deal with her dad, I mean in the way of of a child who is being abused by their parent. Like, she is not in control of this situation at all. She's taking whatever control she can away from her abuser. But, uh, but nonetheless, this is probably an instance where this would have been found out as soon as she came back on Monday, no matter what. Most likely, yeah. You know, her therapist or their medical personnel would have, would have checked her. They would have found evidence of, of that abuse. Um, Maybe. I mean, probably. <laughs> but she chose to she chose to reveal it. And it was because of what Grace revealed of herself that gave Jaden the uh, that gave, gave Jaden the willingness to reveal to reveal her own trauma. Yeah, well. provided enough comfort and, and security that she she felt comfortable doing that. And it's it's a very it, it's a heartbreaking scene. But it is it is, again, a scene that had the air of authenticity to it, much like the rest of the film. So. But. Yeah, I I think that's about all I all I've got here. I mean, this this film ends about as happily as it possibly can. 
it ends on somewhat of a moment of levity. <laughs> um, Sammy strapping on an American flag and like Superman and uh, trying to escape. I see. I just let that kid go because once he gets past the gate, he's gonna come. Around, he's gonna turn around and come right back. It's not their job, <laughs> and that kid did not look like he could take care of himself. I mean, he looked like he was about twelve, so <laughs> um, and was 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 also clearly not mature enough for his age. Like he was also, you know, seemingly in a state of arrested development himself. Again, we don't really know what his deal is. The other thing that I think this movie did a very good job of was making this place feel bustling and alive. There were more kids there than just the handful that we get to know. There were a bunch of background teenagers and other adults walking around in the background of this for a film that was shot clearly shot on a fairly modest budget in kind of just one location, uh, primarily just in one location. This film really did a good job of make, of selling the reality of this place. Yeah. It felt, it felt like a real place. Which, uh, you know, you compare it to something like The New Mutants, which is the uh, the, the moribund X-Men film uh, that was finally dumped on VOD during the COVID pandemic, uh, where there are a bunch of mutants in a hospital, uh, but seemingly there's only one doctor in the entire hospital. Like, I, I want to give this movie credit for making the place feel alive because that is that is a that is something that many much more expensive films do not bother with. They will just create a they'll create a set piece or they'll create a CGI zone and they will not make it feel like a real place at all. They won't make it feel like it's lived in. They won't make it feel like there's other stuff happening outside of the events of this film. Um, and this film did that and it didn't have to. So yeah, props for that. This is really just a very well made film overall. Yep, I, I agree. I, I was very pleasantly surprised surprised with it i mean once that cast got rolled out i was like well jesus <laughs> well speaking speaking of the marvel cinematic universe uh <laughs> while i'm talking about uh about superhero films destin daniel cretton actually is going to be working on a marvel film next he's working on shang chi and the legend of the ten rings um and he, he's directing that it's coming out uh, i think either later this year or next year what um, is that so I'm, I'm, what, what film I'm, is this uh, Shang-Chi, which is, uh, it's a new superhero. It's one that we haven't, uh, it's the, it's the first Asian American, uh, superhero. Cool. Uh, actually, I believe it's a, it's an Asian Canadian actor who was playing him. Um, the, the actor, I don't recall his name, but he was on Kim's convenience and he's very good. So, um, I what, what is to, his uh, power? Yeah, no, I, I don't know. Uh, Destin Daniel Cretton, I believe is Asian American himself as well. So it's, it's good to kind of see that representation, uh, when it comes, you know, b- both in front of and behind the camera, um, in the hopes of seeing something a bit more authentic uh, here than we've seen before. We should so. do another Catwoman movie. Should we? You know, I, I feel like cats are like still really popular pets and I think you could really get some money out of one, like a proper Catwoman film. So, uh, speaking of shit nobody wants, no, oh, <laughs> let's, uh, I'm gonna watch it. Uh, so we get a, we get a much more marketable, uh, scene at the end of this film here that is maybe the sort of happy end, the sort of cinematic happy ending here, because we don't see anything of Marcus past his suicide attempt. Right. Um, and I, I think maybe they just didn't want to show his long and painful recovery, but we just kind of cut forward to, to a few months later. We hear Grace, Grace say that, uh, uh, that, you know, she thinks Marcus is probably going to be okay. Um, and man, the scene where it's revealed that he that he has attempted suicide is is pretty harrowing because we think because his fish died and we think that maybe he might assault another student that he that he thinks did it and we think maybe he has in that scene. It's, yeah, it's I mean, momentarily least, unclear. I was confused. How I read that scene was Marcus went to Luis's room to confront him and probably kill him. Yeah, killed 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 him or seriously injured him, yeah. Yeah, and then had a moment of uh, hesitation and then decided that he was just going to take his own life instead. 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, whatever he did, he did it right outside of Luis's room. And he obviously had a reason for that. But, uh, you know, and, and those two obviously did not like each other at any point in the film. But what we get is this little scene of backstory between uh, of, of him uh, being attracted to the 17 year old girl who was there about to age out of the facility and apparently was very pretty. Um, which I, and I got to hand it to, uh, to John Gallagher as Mason manages to refer to the prettiness of a 17 year old girl without being creepy in any way. Well done. Um, but, uh, cause it's important to the story and all the boys uh, seem to be into her and, uh, and young Marcus, before we know who he, uh, that, that, the, that he is the subject of this story as a 15 year old, uh, stands up, says to her, you are the most interesting thing that I've seen here in a while. And I'm sorry that I won't get the chance to know you. And it became super fucking awkward. And, uh, and, you know, she didn't say a word to him and she, you know, she left the facility the next week. And then they find, they find the two of them on a date in a coffee shop. <laughs> how, 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 uh, how good and fitting is that? That, uh, you know, I honestly, for a scene that is a monologue delivered by a couple about a a couple of characters that are off screen, I had a momentary scoff inside my soul of like, uh, we couldn't have just seen that scene. Like, why are we getting this as a monologue? Did the movie just decide it needed a little bit of levity at the end? But it was so well delivered, I I couldn't scoff at it really. I was just like, this is so nice. And after all the darkness in this film, it was nice to have a moment that was, yeah, and, that made me think there was hope. And and, and uh, Brie Larson, so Grace. Um, ex- not going through with the abortion, choosing to keep the child, and, and being overwhelmed with positive emotion and seeing the baby's heartbeat. Like that, that, was, that was a good end cap to her character. I, I will say it is almost a cliche at this point of character considers abortion but decides to keep the baby because that is just the pro-life culture that we are steeped in at this point. Like we can't we can't empathize with a character who decides to go through with the abortion. And a few a few shows and movies have uh, have kind of gone there and have kind of uh, told that story in a more authentic way. But I appreciated that uh, that Grace decided to keep the baby not for any sort of religious reason or not for any sort of sanctity of life kind of reason. Well, right. It, it, it would not have fit with her character in any way for either of those things. Well, I mean, it was an end cap, you know, for her character. Was that guy was one of the principal aspects of her trauma was that she got pregnant by her father, you know, as a kid. Yeah, and, and her decision of whether to become a parent or not has a lot to do with what sort of parent she thinks she's going to be. Exactly. More so than anything else. So for, for her to make that positive step, you know, uh, I, I think says a lot. And I think it shows that, you know, shows growth, at least uh, of overcoming her trauma. Yeah, I didn't, and I didn't leave the film thinking that this was an ending for this character or an ending for those issues. Those issues will live on and she's going to therapy for them. Well, her father's getting out of prison. Yeah, it's a big deal, <laughs> but she's willing to talk about that with her therapist. So the movie does not end on any sort of sense of finality when it comes to this. These are issues that, like, damage done. She's going to be dealing with this for the rest of her life, and she may have times where she's dealing with it well and times where she's dealing with it poorly. But that that aspect of it felt authentic to me, and I, and I really appreciated it. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our discussion of Short Term 12. If you have any feedback on our discussion, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com. Thank you for tuning in at filmwonk.net and have a good night. Daily waving, moving through the stream of this life like I'm skating. Holy creation, I've never been the basic. Know what it is and where it's at, and you could chase it. I know I made it. Anything in life is attainable with a great gift, a little bit of patience. Like light, I was made to glow. So tonight we're getting white boy wasted. Whoa, yeah, we have the 